All right. Happy Christmas. It's a pleasure, pleasure to see you all. Will you pray with me just as we start? And I'll um, endeavor not to. I'm kind of like the, the twin perils here between the poinsettia and the flames. <laughs> There's a book title right there, isn't there? Okay. Let's pray anyway. <laughs> God in heaven, thank you so much for this day. And we pray that you would feed us. God, so much good is coming to us in our homes and our families on a day like this. And yet we look to you and to your word for the greatest good of all. We look that you would speak to us, that you would feed us, that you'd minister to us, that you'd help us to see you for who you are in the words of your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, check it out. That service. All right. Um, So have we got any kids in here today? Anyone prepared to stick a hand up? Well, we have something for you. Um, special word of warning then for the next kind of six or eight minutes. It's, um, it's just for you. So if you have adults with you, if you brought an adult with you, and if they get a bit wriggly during the next seven or eight minutes, feel free to take them out discreetly. But if you can just keep your adults under control, um, that'll really help. All right. Um, let's kill the lights. Um, we have a story for you, a Christmas story with a bit of a twist. I'm not sure whether you've seen this one before. It's called the, uh, the King, the Prophet, and the Boy with a Really Long Name. Okay, you ready for this? This is a story about a king called Ahaz. Here he is. Ahaz was a really bad king. He was grumpy, so let's just... Um, there we go. See, kind of miserable looking guy. He always thought that he had the best ideas. He thought that God was silly, but really he was kind of silly himself. Anyway, one day, King Ahaz got some really bad news. He looked out over the walls of his castle in Jerusalem, and he saw an army marching towards him. So um, what do you think he said? I think it was something like this. Yikes! An army. Two of his worst enemies in the whole world had decided to gang up against him. The uh, Samaritans. Wow, they look, they look pretty mean. The Arameans. Whew, they look even meaner. The Samaritans and the Arameans were coming to take his kingdom away. Now, what do you think he did? Okay, If he had trusted God, he could have prayed about it. But King Ahaz did not trust God, so he did the only thing that he had left to do, which was panic. Okay, this is where the next character in the story comes in, though. Because even though Ahaz was a very bad king, God sent him a very good prophet called Isaiah. And here he is, compete with the, uh, the sackcloth outfit. Isaiah was always reading God's words and listening to God's voice. And God gave Isaiah a message for the bad king. And it went like this. God said, Ahaz, you bad, bad man. I'm going to show you why you should trust me. I'm going to send you a sign. A special lady is going to have a special baby. And before he's old enough to say, Mama or Dada, I'm going to take those enemies who you fear so much, the Samaritans, and the, uh, the Arameans, wow, still really freaking me out, those guys. And I'm going to beat them up so badly that they'll never cause you any trouble again. So, said the message, 
Look out for the special lady with the special baby. When he comes, he'll be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So, as you can imagine, everyone got pretty excited about the special lady with the special baby. Everyone was excited about getting rid of the Samaritans and the Arameans. And everyone got excited about having God with them. Because, you know, sometimes God felt very far away. His people wanted to be able to see him. They wanted to know what he was really like. They wanted to know that he loved them. Now, King Ahaz didn't believe the message. So he got his army commanders and his magicians together. He tried to figure out a way of his own to make the enemies go away. But everybody else started looking for the special lady with the special baby. And they didn't have to look for long because Isaiah, it turned out, was married to a special lady. Here she comes. And very soon she had a special baby. So everyone started looking at Mrs. Isaiah's special baby and wondering if he might be the one that God had promised. So as you can imagine, the enemies got closer and closer. Mrs. Isaiah's special baby got bigger and bigger. And people kept asking Mrs. Isaiah, has he said mama or dada yet? Mrs. Isaiah just said, nope. The enemies got even closer, so they were knocking on the door. And Mrs. Isaiah's little baby got bigger, so he was bouncing up and down on her lap, and people kept asking her, has he said mama or dada yet? Mrs. Isaiah just said, nope. But then one morning, finally, the little baby looked up at Mr. and Mrs. Isaiah, and he said, mama, dada. And they opened the curtains, and God's enemies had completely disappeared. So that day, as you can imagine... Everybody celebrated. Even King Ahaz looked happy for a change. Although he didn't thank God because he was a very bad king. And everybody thought that Mrs. Isaiah's little baby really was the child that God had promised. But the only problem was his name. You see, the child that they were expecting was supposed to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. But does anybody here know what Mrs. Isaiah's little boy was actually called? Oh, fantastic. Randy Heckman, make that man a senator. (laughs) He was supposed to be called Emmanuel, but he was really called exactly right. Maha Shalal Haspaz. Can you believe it? Maha Shalal Haspaz. What kind of name is that? Anybody here want to be called Maha Shalal Hashbaz? Maha Shalal Hashbaz would be kind of tricky to fit on a school locker, don't you think? <laughs> it doesn't sound a lot like Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Maha Shalal Hashbaz did not behave a lot like Emmanuel either. You see, he was just like one of us. He forgot to say thank you to his mummy and daddy. He picked his nose, did all sorts of other things that you really shouldn't do if you're really God with us. And so God kept feeling a long way away. His people still wanted to be able to see him. They still wanted to know what God was like. They still wanted to know that God loved them. And maybe 
you feel like that too. But here's the cool part. God didn't forget the promise that he made to Isaiah. And on the first Christmas day, it happened for real. Listen to what it says in the Bible. When Jesus was born, the words that God said to Isaiah came true. A special lady had a special baby and she called him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So if God feels far away, or if you want to be able to see him, or if you want to know what he's really like, or if you want to be sure that he loves you, all you have to do is open your Bible and read about Jesus. Because when we read about him and pray to him, God is with us. And that's our story. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Okay. Now, we're going to switch gears here inevitably, but kids, what we're going to do next, although we're going to try and give the adults something just so they feel satisfied for going home, and they did behave very nicely, you've got to admit, but what we're going to do now is really the second part of the same story, so you might want to keep tuned in, see what you make of this. For that adults, I don't know how many of you recognized where that story came from, the king, the prophet, and the boy with the really long name. It's really just the story behind one of our favorite Christmas verses, the promise of Emmanuel from Isaiah chapter 7 and 8. Now the really cool thing about it is that the story doesn't stop there. To help Isaiah and everybody else grasp this fact that Mahershala Haspaz was not going to fulfill the whole promise of Emmanuel, God sent another message to his father Isaiah. In Isaiah 9, we get a clearer picture of all that God had in mind for this child who would one day come. And we're going to look at that now briefly, uh, just as a, a whole church together. So you might want to flip open Isaiah 9 in your Bibles. Just stay seated while I read it. I'm going to start um, at verse 1. Isaiah 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That's quite a passage, isn't it? That gives me the tingles just to read it. So cool. So many wonderful details in there. Um, where should we start? Um, the place where I thought we would start is just uh, look at the question of when. When was this thing written? Isaiah lived during the final days of what we call the northern kingdom 
of Israel uh, before they were swallowed up by the Assyrian Empire, which places this around 700 BC, 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And the very first thing that we read in our passage uh, is that this has uh, a prediction of the exact location of Jesus' ministry. So did you spot that? It says that it's going to take place in Galilee, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Now that's kind of striking, isn't it? Without God being genuinely involved, there's just no way that that prediction could have been possible. There's no way that anyone can predict anything reliably 700 years out. You know, our economists are struggling to predict anything reliably even seven months out at the moment. And that's nothing to 700 years There are multiple points in that 700-year stretch where the nation of uh, Judah was almost completely annihilated. They were besieged by the Assyrians themselves. Very few people lived to tell that tale. Uh, They were carried into exile by the Babylonians. Very few people survived to tell that tale either. They were threatened with genocide by Haman and the Agagites. They were brutally persecuted by the Greeks under Antiochus Epiphanes. Their boundaries were redrawn. Their land was divided up more times than you can shake a stick at. There's no way that Isaiah could have even known that Galilee would still be in Jewish hands 700 years later, let alone that God would raise up a saviour there unless God was involved. So anyway, in the 18th and 19th centuries, the consensus among Bible scholars was that as a result of prophecies like this, this book of Isaiah could not have been written completely by Isaiah himself because it predicts the future so accurately and because predicting the future is impossible, obviously someone must have written it or at least edited it after Jesus' life to make all the pieces come together, right? But in the 20th century, all of that was just completely blown up by the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, I don't know whether you know this part of the story, but in 1946, a Bedouin shepherd called Mohammed Ed-Dib was wandering with his sheep in the hill country up on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea. And he discovered this. Let's just get it up here for you. Okay, just refresh it, Tim. Sweet. So, this is just one little part of the cave system found in Qumran. Muhammad Ed-Dib was walking along the top here. And when he saw these depressions in the ground, he threw in a rock... And he heard the sound of splintering pottery, which made him think, okay, someone's been here before me. So he came back a couple of days later and ventured nearer to the entrance and actually fell in. Um, When he came out, he had ancient documents in his hands. And those documents turned out to be one of the most valuable collections of biblical and other manuscripts ever found. Now, among those documents, when the archaeologists got their hands on it, They found a copy of the book of Isaiah that we're reading this morning. It's called the Great Isaiah Scroll. Now, here's a picture of it. Oh, come on. That's the Great Isaiah Scroll. It's about 11 inches tall, 24 feet long, and it's a remarkable document. It's down to the the individual letters accurate to what we have in our Bibles today. Nothing like this had previously been seen. But the thing that's really striking about the great Isaiah scroll, is when they put this through the process of carbon dating, it comes out, as all these things do, with a range between 300 and 125 BC. That's a pretty stubborn fact. 
It tells us it's simply not possible to claim anymore that the prophecy of Isaiah was substantially altered after Jesus' life to fit in with the things that he said and did. We have a copy of it that existed at least 125 years before he was born and probably substantially more. So it means we have to look at this text that we're reading this morning and see it for what it is. It really is a prediction of the future. And when you see the many, many ways that it accurately predicts the life of Jesus, then I think it just becomes incredibly difficult to explain that prediction of the future as just a series of lucky guesses. See, for me, the only credible way to make sense of it uh, is if the prophecy of Isaiah had God's hand in it. If it was given to Isaiah by someone who didn't have to make lucky guesses about the future because the future is in his hands. That's what we have here. What we're reading this morning comes to us from God. And listen to what it says. First and foremost, it tells us about the birth of a special baby who will have the government on his shoulders. What's that all about? Well, it's no accident that that statement comes first in the list of all the things that Isaiah wants to say to us about this special baby that God is promising. Because this just keys right into the central theme of the whole Bible story. If you had to summarize the Bible story in a sentence, I guess you'd end up saying something like this, that the Bible is the story of God redeeming his kingdom, buying back his special people to live in his special place and to experience the special blessing of his presence with them and his rule over them. Do you remember that? The kingdom of God is God's people living in God's place, experiencing God's blessing, seeing a few nodding heads. Well, if God is all about redeeming his kingdom, that leaves space for one very special central character in the story, doesn't it? A kingdom isn't really a kingdom if it doesn't have a king. And that is who Isaiah is describing here. When he says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, that's what he's getting at. In the ancient world, government and kingship were just exactly the same thing. The two things marched together. So what Isaiah is telling us is that Jesus, the special baby, the boy who really is Emmanuel, God with us, he's the king of God's kingdom. And all the other kings that we see in the Old Testament just point to him, but he's the real thing. Excuse me. Next, Isaiah foresees that when the special baby comes, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor. What do we make of that? Well, the word that we've got there for uh, wonderful that's translated out of the Hebrew literally means full of wonders or miraculous. So what Isaiah is trying to put into words for us is the idea that when this promised king comes, the way that he counsels, his teaching, his advice, his wisdom will be so extraordinary that the only way that people will be able to rationalize it will be to say this has to come from God. There's no other place that it could come from. And this, of course, is exactly the way that people responded to Jesus. So in Mark's gospel, we read that when people heard Jesus teach, they were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? This new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. And do you remember the Samaritan woman who met Jesus at the well? She went back to her neighbors and said, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? That's what it looks like to meet the wonderful counselor. And that, of course, is exactly 
what Isaiah was looking forward to. He was looking forward to a king whose words and insights would be so perceptive, so life-giving, that they could only be explained as a miraculous intervention from God. That's just the story of Jesus' life. Read the Gospels. It's like that from beginning to end. Next, Isaiah foresees that when the special baby comes, he'll be called Mighty God. This would have been quite a conundrum, I think, for Isaiah's audience, maybe even for Isaiah himself. Because we know without any ambiguity that the king that Isaiah foresaw would be a real flesh and blood human being because it says it in the text, he'll be born as a child. Can't get any more human than that. But here God tells us, perhaps even more clearly than we get with that name, Emmanuel, that this child will also be God in all of his fullness, not just a picture of God or a glimpse of God, but God himself. And I wonder who would be equipped to live up to that claim. Because the God of the Bible isn't just some kind of tin pot local deity who has a limited repertoire of tricks that some kind of talented con man could easily rip off. The God of the Bible is morally perfect. The God of the Bible creates simply by speaking. The God of the Bible forgives sins. He raises the dead. That's not easy stuff to fake. But it all fits with Jesus. Again, we see it all over the Gospels. Too many examples to to name, but the one that really gets me always is the feeding of the 5,000. Because there you've got Jesus. It's a Sunday school story. He takes five loaves. He takes two fishes. He blesses the food. And then we can just guess maybe at the words that came after that quietly. Let there be fish. Let there be bread. Bam. And it's just like Genesis 1. Speaking is all he has to do. He creates matter out of nothing and feeds 5,000 people. Only God can do that. That's God's signature move. Next, Isaiah foresees that when the special baby comes, he'll be called Everlasting Father. That's kind of stretching too, isn't it? A baby being a father. It's pointing us clearly again to this idea that would have been really almost scarcely comprehensible to an Old Testament Jew. The idea that the baby in the prophecy is going to be God himself. You see, in the Old Testament, there are many fathers. We've got the 12 fathers of the 12 tribes. We've got the patriarchs going all the way back to Father Abraham himself. But there's only one everlasting father. There's only one place where all of those genealogies terminate. You know, Noah was the great, great grandson of Seth. Seth was the son of Adam. Adam was the son of God, period. It doesn't seem possible that any man could ever break out of that chain of being derived from his own father. So to be, uh, in order to claim to be the God who is so underived that there's no one or nothing that he can be compared to. You know, when Moses uh, met God and asked his name, all that he would say is, I am what I am. You've never seen anything like me. But then listen to the incredible words of Jesus in John's gospel when he was asked to describe himself. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the true vine. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Next, Isaiah foresees that when the special baby comes, he will be called the Prince of Peace. And for me, this one just shouts out of the life and ministry of Jesus, don't you think? 
One of my favorite passages in the whole of the Gospels is the story of Jesus calming the storm. But it's not just the raw power of it. It's not just the fact that he stands up and he speaks to the storm and the weather obeys him. It hears the voice of its own creator and just goes flat calm. You know, that should be enough to have us on our faces in worship. But there's more. The, symbol of it, the symbolism of it is really powerful. You see, in Jewish culture, the sea was their symbol for everything that was destructive in life. The Hebrew word for sea, which is yam, is exactly the same word which they use for chaos. That's what the text of Genesis is getting at when it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the sea, hovering over the waters. It's saying that God confronts chaos and he forces it to give way to order and life and peace. Whatever kind of chaos it is, whether it's the chaos of unemployment or the chaos of addiction or the chaos of bereavement, God and God alone can speak peace into it. And that's the symbolism of Jesus calming the storm. Do you see that? When Jesus speaks to the waves and says, quiet, be still. It's showing us that he's not just the God of power, he's the Prince of Peace. And then finally, Isaiah foresees that when the special baby comes, he will enjoy endless rule. Isaiah tells us that the greatness of his government and peace will have no end, and that he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. That section might seem a little bit obscure to us, but this is one of those passages that would have just jumped off the page for the people who heard it originally because they were so deeply familiar with the Old Testament. You see, living as a believer in Isaiah's time was all about longing to see God's promises fulfilled. They knew that God was a promise-keeping God. They'd seen him fulfill promise after promise in their history. But there were also so many promises that were still awaiting fulfillment. And one of the biggest ones was this promise that God made to David to put a successor on his throne who would shepherd and love his people forever. And I bet at this time in their history, they were maybe particularly desperate to see that promise fulfilled. Because the king that they had on the throne, King Ahaz, he was so far from being a worthy successor to David. We toned that down a little bit at the start. This guy was a monster. He was a psychopath. He sacrificed his own son uh, to the Canaanite god god Molech. He broke up the contents of the temple and sold the silver and gold to the king of Assyria. God's people were thirsting, desperate for a king who would establish and uphold God's kingdom with justice and righteousness, as it says in the passage. But it's only when the story reaches Jesus that we finally see that promise fulfilled. The people were still waiting so that when they saw Jesus, all they could do was kind of blurt out, could this be the son of David? That's what they were desperate for. But unlike any other king before him, Jesus was able to answer that question and meet those expectations. Jesus established God's kingdom in righteousness and justice by clothing the people of his kingdom in his own righteousness and then satisfying all the demands of justice against us by dying in our place on the cross. So do you see that today, on Christmas Day, we're looking at the child who became the man who fulfilled every last detail of this miraculous prophecy that can only come from God. In the last line of the passage in Isaiah, it says, the zeal of the Lord God will accomplish this. Well, 700 years after those words were written, the zeal of the Lord God did 
accomplish this. The special baby, the child who would be called Emmanuel, he is the baby in the manger, Jesus Christ. And with the shepherds and the angels, we worship him. The waiting is over. God is with us. Let's pray. God, as we just think about this amazing passage from your word, I'm just reminded of that, one of my favorite carols. What can I give him, poor as I am? Uh, If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. But what can I give him while I give my heart? I just want to commit that to you again. And I guess many of us want to do that again here this morning. Just a kneel at the side of the manger and just say, everything that I am, everything that I have is yours. I recognize you as the God who made it all and I live to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.